0: to completing my degree there um, all right we are in Isaiah chapter 25 and before we read our text I'd like to begin talking about this uh, this way I've got a quote here for you this quote is from Steve Jobs Steve Jobs uh, is uh, was the CEO and is the co-founder of Apple uh, like this thing right here Um, He is uh, no longer with us. He died in 2011. I'd like to read a quote by By him. him here. He says, technology is nothing. What's important is that you have a faith in people, that they're basically good and smart, and if you give them tools, they'll do wonderful things with them. Okay, so he wants us to see three things here. He wants us to first see that you need to have faith in people, that people are basically good and smart, and that they will do wonderful things. Okay? I want to contrast these three ideas with what the scriptures say. Okay? Here they are. Have faith in people, says Steve Jobs. God says, have faith in God. John three sixteen through 18, for example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. (coughs) All right? Faith in people won't get you anywhere. Faith in God, that's what we need. What about the idea that people are basically good and smart? Um, That's what Steve Jobs says. God says that they are altogether bad and foolish. For example, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven to the children of man to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So no one understands and no one does good. Therefore, they are altogether bad and foolish. What about they do wonderful things? As says Steve Jobs, God says they do... Terrible things. For example, Genesis chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. The people said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth." And the Lord came down to see the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, "Behold, they are one people; and they have all have one language. And this is the be- this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they purpose to do now will be impossible for them. So the technology of men." And the tools that they have been given, did they do good and righteous things with it or did they do corrupt things with it? Well, the tools and the technology, uh, they chose to elevate themselves rather than elevating God. So uh, rather than taking things and doing wonderful things, we tend to take things and do terrible things instead. So basically everything Steve Jobs says other than technology is nothing is wrong. Technology is nothing. Have faith in God. They're altogether bad and foolish, and they do terrible things. Yes, that is right. So here are the two ideas that we need to contrast together. Have faith. This is option one. Have faith in the goodness and wisdom of people. They will accomplish wonderful things. That's what Steve Jobs says. Or have faith in the goodness and wisdom of God. He will accomplish wonderful things. Now, that sounds much better, doesn't it? But is it true? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Now, let's stop on this verse just for a few moments. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. Okay? Why? Because he has done wonderful things. Wonderful things says who? Who says the things that God does are wonderful? And how can we know that they are faithful and sure, the things that he has done? If Yahweh is our God, as it says literally here, then we will praise his name for all that he has done in the past, in the present, and in the future. If Yahweh, that is the one truly great existent one, the one by whom all things exist and the one for whom all things exist, if he is purposing to do something, it pleases him. The one who brought all things into existence, he will do all that pleases him. And in that, we ought to be pleased. God will do all that pleases Him, and in God doing that, we ought to be pleased. Let me give you two two verses here. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Anything He wants to do, He does it. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. Whatever God pleases to do, He will do. Because, after all, all things are his, and he can do as he pleases. So, to say that something is wonderful must be defined from God himself. Just because you call something wonderful doesn't make it wonderful. Now, if God calls something wonderful, then, indeed, it is wonderful. I'm pretty sure I've called things wonderful in the past. That's not really a term that I use too often. That's wonderful. Uh, I don't really say that too much, but I'm sure I have called something wonderful in the past that in fact wasn't wonderful at all. Steve Jobs says that people will do wonderful things. Is that true or false? Left to their own, they will only do terrible things. So who defines what is wonderful? It is left to God alone. To define what is wonderful, and so we say this: the wonderful things are the things of God. Whatever God purposes, whatever He determines, whatever He wants to do, whatever He says is wonderful is, in fact, what is wonderful. We do not get to decide what is wonderful and what is not. That definition is left to God alone. So, what is wonderful to God? Isn't that the next? Logical question that we would ask. So if God is the one that defines what is wonderful, what has God said is wonderful? And so we look to His Word. Now, I want to make a mention here of this. He says, I will praise you for you have done wonderful things, and the wonderful things that God has done are plans formed of old, and the plans that God formed of old are faithful and sure. He's saying this, the things that God planned to do are faithful and sure and that is all the things that God has planned to do will come to pass exactly as he has planned them that's what makes them faithful and sure they are sure they are plans of God and don't be deceived what God has planned will come to pass there has never been a thing that God planned to come to pass that did not come to pass Proverbs 1921. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We've purposed to do lots of things for our life, haven't we? Man, I've had some I've had some good plans. You know, I had plans to go back to school before. That was my plan. It didn't work out for a long time. I tried. I tried to force it. it didn't happen. It wasn't the time. but never so with God's plans. Don't you know that? Whatever God purposes, whatever He plans, events never happen as such to make it to where God's plans are not able to come to pass. What He purposes happens. What He plans comes to pass. Isaiah 14, 26, and 27. Of course, this is one of my favorites, and you know it. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? I love, love this passage. Why? Because it shows us the great sovereignty of God. His hand is the hand that's over all the nations and all the peoples. If it's his hand that's stretched out, Yahweh, the creator God, if it's his hand that's stretched out to purpose of purpose concerning all the nations, who is it? who can raise up and take the hand of God and turn it away so as his plans never come to pass the way he wanted them to. Angels, rulers, powers, authorities, anything, or are all things created by him and for him, including those things? Yes, rulers, powers, angels, authorities, all these things were created for him and by him. Can the creature then turn around to God and say, you can't do this? No, never. All the things that are purposed by God will come to pass His hand is stretched out. He has made a purpose, and his purpose will come to pass. God is not just in the heavens waiting for things to happen and then responding to those things as he sees fit because that's not a plan and a purpose unless his plan is I'm going to wait and I'm going to see what happens, and then when something happens, I'm going to respond to it. That's my plan. Now, that's not a plan really, is it? God has a plan formed of old, faithful, and sure. God knows exactly what he's going to do. And there is nothing that any creature can ever do to mess up the purposes and the plans that God has made. Now, that's reassuring. This is the sovereign nature of our God. And any less thinking of him would make man sovereign and God in subjection to us. If we say, God wants to do this, but I just didn't have enough faith, that means that you are in sovereign control of what comes to pass rather than God. God is the only one who is truly and perfectly sovereign. Did you know that God has a plan for this world, that his hand is continually stretched out over the nations? He has a plan for this nation. God has a plan for this city. Did you know that God has a plan for this church and for your family? God has a plan for you. Our God is the one and only true God. He does all that he wants to do, his plans and his purposes. These are the things that are wonderful. The plans and the purposes of God, these are the things that are wonderful. And sometimes, and the reason I'm pressing this matter so much is not only because it's presented to us in the text, but because we think differently than this. That if something happens that we consider not wonderful, that makes it not wonderful. Are you with me? We are about to read something in the text that if we were to see this happen today, we would say, what a horrible disaster Maybe this caught God off guard. What is he going to do in response to this? Oh, we better pray that God intervenes and does something. Otherwise, there's going to be chaos in this world. Or is it possible that God is already in control and you don't need to try to make him in control? He already is in control whether you want to make him be that or not. God is continually in control forever. Whether you want him to be or not, he is. There is no event that catches him off guard. Okay, and so we see two things given in our text that are wonderful. So Isaiah begins by saying, O Lord, you are my God, the one true God, and you are my God, thank goodness. And I will exalt you, not man. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. And the things that you have done are faithful and sure. That's a God worthy to be praised, isn't it? The things that he has done are faithful and sure. Yes. Verse 2. We're going to look at the things that Isaiah gives us. He gives us insight into the wonderful thing that he has on his mind right now. You say God does wonderful things, but certain things pop into your mind, right? Certain things that God has done in your life or certain things that God has done throughout history. These are the wonderful things. Well, God has done many wonderful things, but there's a particular thing that Isaiah draws our attention to here. Okay, so let's read the wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. I guess we need to fill in that blank, right? Or did you already put it up there? No. The reason God is able to make plans is because he is perfectly sovereign. That only makes sense, right? Now, if I say this is what will be, I say in, in 28 minutes and 26 seconds, my sermon will be over. Praise the Lord. It's a, that was a real number, by the way. That uh, I I uh, I don't know if that will be the case or not, or if I say I will. Let's just say anything. Are your plans the ones that are faithful and sure? And why aren't they? Because you are not sovereign. You cannot make it happen. There is only one who is sovereign, and that's what we say: if the Lord wills because he is the only one whose will matters if the lord wills i will do this or that so the only reason god can make plans and their faithful and sure is because he is sovereign and there is no one who can turn his hand back thank god that he is our god that everything he purposes to do will come to pass and we know that he is good and right and just and all the promises he has made to us will come to pass there is no chance of them failing. I'm the only one who's excited about that, I guess. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so what are, the, what are the wonderful things that Isaiah draws our attention to? Let's look. Verses 2. Let's look at verses 2 through 5. 4. Okay, so we know there's a continuation of thought. So you've done wonderful things, for, so he's about to tell us what they are. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. You have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and shade of the heat. For the breath of the ruthless, ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat in the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Okay, so here's what God does. I'd like to uh, give you the summary here that you can fill in in your notes, and we'll talk about it. It is, number one, the first wonderful thing that God does. God brings about disaster and ruin so that people may come to him for shelter. That is the wonderful thing that he has done that Isaiah is praising him for, and that we ought to praise him for. Now, we might think, wonderful things of God, disaster and ruin. Wait, no, that's not a wonderful thing of God. It can't be. But according to God's word and according to Isaiah, it is the very thing that he wants us to praise God for. Praise God for his wonderful things. Praise God that you have made the city a heap. Praise God that you have... Uh, uh, taken the fortified city and made it a ruin. Thank God that the foreigner's palace is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Thank God that you brought ruin and devastation to that city. Why? Why would we call that wonderful? Well, he continues on to let us know why. First of all, it was God's purpose and his intention. And then verse 3, it says, Therefore, because you have brought disaster and ruin, therefore, the peoples will glorify you. And the cities of those ruthless nations that you tore down their fortifications, they will praise you now. Because you brought ruin and disaster, they will now praise you. This is what makes it a wonderful thing of God. It says for, and it continues on, you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold for the needy and distress, a shelter in the storm and shade from the heat. So you see what God has done here. He took a foreign, ruthless, brutal, heartless nation, a people who did not fear him. He brought ruin and devastation on their city. And when they were ruined and devastated, they needed a place to run for shelter. No longer could the fortifications that they built protect them. They've been taken down. No longer can their palace give them shelter and security. God tore it down. So then where will we run for shelter? Where will we run for protection? Everything we've built with our hands has been ruined. So where else can we turn? And thank God that he brought about devastation to show them you can never bring about shelter in your own life with your own hands. You cannot be your place of shelter. The money in the bank doesn't matter. The house you have, it doesn't matter. These things are not what gives you your security and your shelter. It is God and God alone. He is the one who shelters us from the storm and from the heat and from the ruthless people. He alone is our shelter. And so it says, you brought about ruin and devastation so that the people of foreign nations might fear you. Why? Because when everything was torn down, they had no place to go but to run to you. And isn't that common to what happens in our lives is that we tend to turn to the Lord when? When there's devastation. Thank God that he brings about devastation that we might seek him out as the only shelter that matters. Thank God that when everything is pulled out from under your feet, that you know the only place I can stand is on the solid ground of Christ. And so we pray, God, pull it out from under my feet so that I know there is no place I can build, no platform that I can create that I can stand based on what I've done with my hands. Because left to myself, I will not do good and right things. I will do what is poor. But thank goodness that you have built for me a foundation that is firm, a plan established from of old, a wonderful thing, and that is mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. That will never leave. That shelter is always there. Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for the saints. Jesus Christ is there as our perpetual high priest. He will never be moved. He will never be shaken. And continually has granted us an inheritance that was eternal Everlasting, that can never be taken away from us, that is faithful and sure. And so I have to encourage you this morning that if you're going through a time of devastation, it didn't catch God by surprise. You know that. It's not as Satan got another check mark on his side. Do you know the book of Job? Do you remember what it says? Do you remember what happened? Could could Satan do whatever he wanted to do? He could only do what the Lord permitted him to do. There is only one sovereign hand over this creation. There is only one sovereign hand over your life, and that is God and God alone. Thank goodness for that reassurance. What's the second thing he wants us to see? Look at verses... uh, Verses 6 through 8, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of food rich and full of marrow, of, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach from all His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And we know that when the Lord speaks and when He makes plans, they are faithful and sure and that they are wonderful. The second thing that Isaiah wants us to see, the second wonderful thing is this, that God brings about life and joy for those who come to Him for shelter. Okay, so God brings about ruin and disaster so that we might need shelter. If you don't need God, then why would you ever go to Him? But thank goodness that He brings about devastation in our life that we might come to see our spiritual condition that is in ruin and peril and that we might go to Him as our only shelter. And for those who do come to Him, they are given life and joy eternally. Life and joy. It starts off by saying, on this mountain. And then again, verse 7, it says, on this mountain. We remember Isaiah 2, 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Remember that mountain? This is the promise of the everlasting kingdom brought about through Jesus Christ. The mountain being spoke of here is the everlasting kingdom of God. That we understand through the work of Jesus Christ. He is its king. The promise is made of the everlasting kingdom. And so there's a contrast here for what we saw before, the city that was brought about to destruction. And now there's a city that is the biggest, all the nations flow to it. It is the one that is never moving. So there's the city of man, city of God situation that we talked about previously. And so there's the city of man that they establish. There's the city of God that he establishes, which is greater, obviously, the city of God. And it's this city that he talks about. So now we come to see what God has planned in his city and on this mountain. For all who run to him as shelter says there is a great feast for all the people. Look at that. It says, he will make a feast of rich food. So what's about to be explained here is the best of the best what you would think of as a great feast, the best that your body could ever want. And here's how it describes that. A feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. Um, you know that as wine sits for most, if it's a well-refined wine, it gets better with age, right? We know that. And by the way, as soon as a grape is crushed, you know that it begins the fermentation prog- uh, prog- uh, process. Thank you. I kept wanting to say progress over and over. The fermentation process, and uh, the idea of grape juice is new, uh, brought about by a guy with the last name Welch. And so this wasn't grape juice here. I'm just letting you know it was fermented wine. It was, it was, uh, but this is what, in their mind, was uh, the greatest feast that you can imagine with the richest food, with the richest, best wine you can imagine. And it says it twice so that it, it gives the picture of your body being completely satisfied. And of course, anything that we have in our body that brings about satisfaction is only meant to point towards the reality that we will be satisfied in our soul completely. The best thing that you could ever crave for your body, you will get. But more than that, what you crave in your soul will be abundantly supplied to you forever. Heaven is going to be better than what you think it is. You might have a high view of what heaven is like. You might have a high view of the glorified state when all things are made new, but it's going to be even better than what you think. We can't even fathom, first of all, eternity, and second, we can't fathom being completely satisfied in our soul. Can you imagine perfection? It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? It'll be better than what we think. It's a feast. And this is God's wonderful plan that all who trust in Him will come to a great feast one day. But it says over and over all people. I want to address that. It says in several places all people, all nations, all faces. Who is it who is coming to the feast? All people, all faces, all nations? All people? All people will be at the feast? Because it says all people. And you know, you've always heard preachers say all means all. But all of what? Does all mean every individual human being? Or does it relate to, as we read in Isaiah 24, all nations and classes of people? you remember what it says? In Isaiah 24, if you look back there, it says in the beginning, as it shall be with the people and the priests, slave, master, maid, mistress, buyer, seller, and that is to take the least to the greatest and to encompass everything in between. That is to say, all people of all skin color, from all places on the earth, and from every trade and class of people, all peoples, all peoples of all nations, of all faces, It is they who will be at the feast. So it is not for a particular skin color to be at the feast. If it was, it probably wouldn't be white because none of these people were white. If white is even a thing anymore. So there is a feast for all people and we should understand that not as every individual but instead referencing all nations and classes of people will be represented at the feast. And we look again at verses 7 and 8. It says there's a veil over the nations. He's swallowing up on this mountain the covering that's over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. What is it that is swallowed up? What is the veil spread out over the nations? Well, the veil is swallowed up just like death is swallowed up. So the veil that is stretched out over the nations is a veil of death. And it covers and it encompasses all nations of all people. Death is stretched out over the nations. And so we see now why we need to run to God for shelter, why we need help, why we need life. Because if we didn't have life, all we would have is death. I would rather have life than death. And there is only one life giver. God, and there's only one way to get it, through Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17. It says, Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17, Therefore they are before the throne of God. They will serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither will they thirst anymore. Yet, remember, we're at a big feast. We don't need these things anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. This is exactly what is referenced. I want you to see the parallel here. The scorching heat, the shelter, the shade, the feasting, it's all represented here in in Revelation chapter 7. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike, uh, strike them, the scorching heat. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd he will guide them to springs of living water and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When is that going to happen? It says, if you missed it in verse 8, he will wipe away all tears from their faces. Okay, we, we read that. He's going to wipe away all tears. He will be their shelter. There will be no need for any more food and wine. Okay, so this is, again, this is this is a picture of that great feast. But who will be at the feast? Revelation 7, 14. That's just the verse previous, by the way. I just left that out. Who is it who's at this feast? They who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the people who are at the feast. Those who have their garments washed white in the blood of the lamb. Those who are washed by Christ. And how are you washed by Christ? Only by faith in Christ. He is our righteousness. So if you have faith in Christ, you will be at this great feast. Now, I want to make it again very clear. All people, every individual born, all people will not be at this feast. There will be a particular group of people at this feast. The group of people at the feast are those who have faith in Christ. Even those who had faith in God looking ahead to His promises. These are the people whose reproach is taken away. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50-57. through 57. I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable, or the imperishable, excuse me. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For this perishable body must put on imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, verse 54, this is what's significant. It is a direct quotation from our passage here, Isaiah 25. It says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. When is this promise come to pass? It says... Um, the Lord will wipe away all the tears. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all the people. Um, when is it that the Lord is going to do all of these things? Death is swallowed up in victory. When is it going to happen? When the mortal body puts on immortality. When the mortal body puts on immortality, then we will know for sure that death has been swallowed up in victory. Why? Because we will have life after we die. And not only will we have life, we will have life abundantly. Not only will we have life and have it abundantly, but we will have a great feast with God. And we will be in joy and in his presence and his shelter forever. That's again referenced in, in, in Hosea thirteen fourteen. by the way, if you want to look at that. Hosea thirteen fourteen and it says, As the Lord has spoken in verse 8. I want to read one more passage before I, before I go on to this last section here. This is Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. It says, In Him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Those plans are firm, fixed, very much established, and no one can change them. Verse 12, So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is, we have the right and hope and promise of an inheritance, but we have not received it yet. You understand, this life is not the best that there is, but there is a better life coming. When you go through failures, situations, devastations, distress, and you weep, one day all the tears will be wiped from your face. One day your soul will be more satisfied than you can ever Imagine you will feast abundantly and you will be protected eternally. Verses 9 through 12. It says, And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down as in a dunghill. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down, he will lay low and he will cast to the ground and to the dust. Um, when I was a kid, well, let's say I was in my very very early teens, maybe, 10, 12, 13 years old. I did a lot of waiting because I, I, uh, I did some extracurricular activities. Most of what I did was uh, band. I did a, and it was after school for me. And my dad was always the one to come pick me up. Um, and it would normally be around, you know, 8, 9 o'clock at night when I would need to be picked up. I remember there was an afternoon when I needed to be picked up. It was around 5, 6. And uh, I remember sitting on this brick wall waiting by the road. And all my friends were gone. I mean, mom, everybody had been gone for a good little while. And I was just sitting there kicking my feet. It was before everybody had a cell phone. And so I couldn't just call them up. I did go, and I tried to call the house. It rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. I thought, well, maybe he's on his way. But my dad had a uh, an issue with falling asleep in his chair in front of the TV, and nothing can wake him up unless you shake him. So uh, calling the house wouldn't do any good. And so I, I was sitting there, and I decided, you know what? He's probably asleep. He's not coming. It's only getting later. I'm going to walk home. Now, home was about... 15 miles away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I had an aunt who lived about uh, five, six miles away. I thought, at least I can walk over to their house. Kind of on the way to my house. And so I go I, I go walking. And, and I'm walking. I, I remember I walked uh, a good ways, probably three miles or so I had walked. And... Uh, a car pulls up behind me, and I, I, you know, I, I, I hear it, and it pulls off right behind me, kind of fast. And I look behind, and it was my brother-in-law's mother. And I, was, I, th- I thought, what are you doing here? She said, you better get in this car right now. I said, oh, okay, what's the problem? She said, everyone in the family is going frantic looking for you. Where did you go? And I said, well... There's nothing I could do. I mean, I needed to get somewhere. No one would answer any phone. I had to, so I just decided to take things into my own hand and walk. Sometimes we very impatiently wait for God to act, and sometimes we wrongly think maybe God's asleep. Maybe God doesn't realize that something needs to be done. And so what do we do? Take matters into our own hands. We try to fix it. If God's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. That got you into trouble, didn't it? Always gets me into trouble. Our God does not sleep, He does not weary. He is in the heavens doing all that He pleases. He sees all things, he knows all things, and he is altogether good and righteous. He has not forgotten about you. It will be said on that day, We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What we need to remember today is that we are among those who still wait. We wait. I have a couple passages here, but I, just, I want to read uh, James 5, verses 7 through 11. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Do you see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, people, generations have lived and died, but yet the coming of the Lord was still at hand, you know that. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, let's take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Wait, he could have referenced a lot of people, but he talked about Job. You have heard of the patience of Job And the purpose of the Lord. Now, if we were to take the beginning of Job, whoa, what a horrible story. But don't you see the purpose of the Lord in it? Do you see what he was doing? Don't you see what God was doing in his life? God was actively involved, even though there was utter ruin and devastation in the life of Job. What was God's purpose? Satan, have you uh, seen my faithful servant Job? Don't you know God had a purpose for everything that was happening in Job's life? And you consider Job blessed. What about you? Do you see ruin and devastation and trials in your life and you say, God, why are you torturing me so? Have you forgotten about me? Maybe you're sleeping. Maybe I need to take things into my own hand. Don't you see the purpose of the Lord? Look at Job. Don't you know God is doing something? He's not asleep. God is very much awake. It says, in that second half of it, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. So let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. That's us today. We, we rejoice in that and we wait. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain that is on the kingdom of God, and Moab will be trampled down in His place as straw is trampled down on a dunghill, all those people who gather together and create their own kingdom will be destroyed. He takes Moab as an example of that. All, all the things that you create with your hands, all the cities and the technologies and the nations that rise up, remember that those are as nothing in his hand. Those things will be done away with. But all those who are on the mountain of God as part of his feast will remain forever, in eternal life and joy with him. I'm going to end in one, uh, one passage here and I, and I want to say, this is, should be the last place on your notes here, is that there is no other way of salvation but to come to this feast of God. There is no other way of salvation but to come to the feast of God. I'm going to read out of Matthew 22 and again, this is where I'm going to end today. Matthew 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then I'm also going to read the very end which is verse 14. So Jesus speaks a parable to the people to teach them and listen to the parable that Jesus gives. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent servants to call those who were invited to the feast, but they would not come. And so... He sent out someone else to go gather those for the feast. Verse 14 ends by saying, Many are called, but few are chosen. It is the few who will feast. Although a feast is prepared, not everyone will eat at the feast. Two things I want you to walk away with today. If you are a believer, you have been a believer for some time. You need to find reassurance in the God who is sovereign today. You need to know that in the midst of your life and in your troubles, don't you know that the hand of the Lord is still stretched out? And there is still no one who can turn it back? And he is still a God who has purposes and plans? Be patient, therefore, for the Lord. Do you remember Job and the purpose of God? Be patient in your sufferings. Be patient in your sufferings. What an easy thing to say and a hard thing to realize. Suffering is hard. But we're called to be patient in our sufferings and to remember the steadfastness of those people who have come before us. And praise God for what he's doing. Don't you know that God is only doing wonderful things? Now, it might not look like it to your eye, but don't you know that he is only doing wonderful things because he is wonderful? Please be encouraged by that today. For those of you who maybe have not called on the name of Christ, you need to recognize today There is no other way to find satisfaction for your soul, but in fact, you will only find death and devastation for all eternity. Have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has prepared an inheritance for all those who call on him in faith. We will feast with him. And so the call to us all is come to the feast. For those of you who are believers, come to the feast and remember who your Savior is. Remember there is a feast prepared for you. And so be patient and wait. Be patient and wait for that day when you will be satisfied completely. You will not be satisfied completely today or tomorrow. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then it will come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. So be patient. This life is short. The next life is very long. Be patient for the Lord and rejoice in what He has done.